Hello, everybody, and welcome into a brand new episode of Let's Dive Deep. My name is Bradley. My name is Connor. And today we are continuing our deep dive into the magical, mystical, and deeply influential wizarding world of Harry Potter. During today's episode, we will cover Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Chapters 3, The Letters from No One, and 4, The Keeper of the Keys. I must warn you, dear listener, that while each installment of this series will focus on a particular chapter or set of chapters, we are both revisiting these books, and a certain degree of foresight cannot be completely avoided. First-time readers are strongly encouraged to read each book ahead of time, lest future details be spoiled by our discussion. And also remember that the forest on the end of the castle grounds is forbidden to all pupils. Much like your muggle cousin, your muggle aunt and uncle, and your muggle cousin giving you your longest ever punishment after the fiasco at the zoo, Let's Dive Deep does contain adult content. How adulty? We have no idea, but we recommend that this podcast not be listened to in front of people who are not yet old enough to have received their OWL results. Okay, that's it. Our mischief is managed, and we solemnly swear that we are up to no good. So grab yourself a pumpkin juice, a butterbeer, maybe even a fire whiskey, and let's dive deep into Harry Potter. Chapter 3, The Letters from No One. In these next two episodes, for those of you listening, we're recording two episodes back-to-back here to bank them up. So we got five chapters we're recording in a row here. And shit is getting magical. There's so much magic happening, and it's awesome. I've actually got, we both have a fire whiskey today, which is awesome. What kind of whiskey are you drinking? Oh, it's my standard. Well, the audience doesn't know what your standard is. Well, if you've listened to Hamilton, no, this is the Jim Beam White Label. Jimmy, I got 40 Creek Copper Pot. I'm going for Canadian today. I am Canadian, though, so that makes a lot of sense. Anyways, we've got Wait, our... you are? <laughs> Crazy! <laughs> I know! I, uh, uh, depending on how long we go, I do still have... I have some of the Wee Beastie left over from finishing Hamilton that I might nice. crack back into. Uh, that right. was my celebratory whiskey for finishing Hamilton. But yeah, today is just my uh, my daily carry, as it were. All right. The recap for chapter number three, and just I wanted to remind the, the listeners here, the recaps are just whatever I jot down at the end of the episode. Go to Sparknotes or something if you want an actual proper recap of events from this chapter. Harry is facing his longest ever punishment after the zoo fiasco. Soon after, a letter arrives addressed suspiciously to his cupboard under the stairs. The Dursleys clearly know something weird is afoot and move Harry into Dudley's second bedroom to try and throw the letter sender off the scent as if the letter won't still arrive to the same house? Question mark? Question mark? I don't know. Vernon becomes actually crazy. Literally insane. This this is ridiculous. And takes his family on what I can only describe as the worst road trip ever to avoid the now <laughs> bajillion <laughs> sets of letters there's so many of them and they're arriving in all kinds of ways they're in the egg cartons man this chapter is wild my alternative <laughs> chapter title for this chapter like just i'm a 90s kid and i i grew up in the 90s and i just had to i just had to do it the little aol like jingle you've got mail yeah and my alternative title is you brigand you stole mine <laughs> that's exactly what i was gonna say (laughs) um listeners 
if you're listening to this, let us know. Twitter, TikTok, I don't know, Facebook, or wherever you're wherever you are interacting with us, let us know who won the best alternative chapter title for this episode. I suppose where I want to start here. And this This is one's the... kind of wash, really, because like That's we true. both had the same. Like you get credit because you put it in the notes first. Like this one's kind of you kind of get a buy this week. Maybe the listeners are passionate people. Maybe they have very strict guidelines by which they're judging our chapter titles. We have no idea. Maybe they're not yeah. even, maybe there's no rules. Maybe they're just picking people for fun. I have no idea. Um, the The problem we're going to run into with Harry Potter a lot is there's so much to, to discuss in each chapter that it's going to be really hard to make sure we get to all of it. I think some of the overarching themes or things that I want to talk about with, with this chapter here is that there's this there's this sense of belonging that Harry now has. You know, things aren't going well. He's got his longest ever punishment. Uh, we can go over all the variety of the ways the Dursleys fucking suck. But they are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, but Harry gets this letter, and this letter pops in, and it's addressed to him. But it's unambiguous because it's also addressed to the cupboard under the stairs. It is not at all um, ambiguous that this person... Thank you, phone. It is not at all ambiguous that this person is meaning to address this letter to Harry. There is no confusion here. It's not been sent to the wrong place. It's not been sent to the wrong house or anything like that. This is for Harry. And that must feel so freaking good for Harry, who's been locked in his cupboard under his stairs for 11 years, to get a letter addressed to him. Especially in the context of he received his longest punishment ever. As far as we're given to understand, this is the bleakest his life has ever been. And now here is someone writing to him. Like, who would want to write to you? You know, we get that a little bit later on. They wrote to you by mistake, but Harry knows. No, there is someone reaching out to me on purpose, me individually. And yeah, that's got to make him feel special. Vernon throughout this chapter is... I don't know if you want to sign. Why is my, my phone is on another level today. Um, Got to get off tender, dude. I, <laughs> that's what it is. It's all of my matches. I have so many matches coming through at all times of the day that it, you can't even slow down for podcast recording. No, he's a popular guy. <laughs> Vernon, Vernon in this <laughs> chapter, I, I'm going to go with actually crazy. The yeah. letters keep coming. They For keep sure. coming. They're 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 still arriving at the house, um, mercifully, but also with bad motivations. They move Harry into Dudley's second bedroom, which Dudley does not like very much. And that's kind of a funny kind of side plot is Dudley's reaction to all of this happening. Who would write to you, Harry Potter? I want my room back. Ah! And so Dudley is pretty much on the side of this chapter, just freaking out the whole time. Um, but Vernon is just on another level. They know what is happening. This is ridiculous. Petunia knows what Hogwarts is. We're gonna learn in book seven. Spoilers. We 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 warned you. We're gonna look in book. We're gonna learn in book seven that Petunia wrote to Albus Dumbledore to let her into Hogwarts. So this is not something that Petunia knows nothing about. They know he's magical. And once the letters start arriving, addressed to him under the cupboard, and then they're addressed to the, the room upstairs, and then they're coming... I put in my notes, once they're in the egg cartons, once the letters are like appearing in your egg cartons, that's when you give up. That's the point at which a sane person 
would give up trying to stop Harry from getting these letters because they're going to get to him. But Vernon just on another level of of just dedication and determination to making Harry miserable. It's really cruel, but it plays this kind of funny. Well, it kind of has to, right? Like for the for the book to work, they have to play as funny. We we have to believe that they are foolish and grotesque. Um, you know, they can't they can't believe that something magical is going on. Instead, we're going to write the dairy and the postman to complain about it. Um, which I, I just adore because it is so pedestrianly muglish. Like it's so great. Like they're okay. So my nephew that I hate that I don't want to be raising is receiving letters rolled up in the eggs delivered by the dairyman. That's strange, but I'm going to respond to it in the most mugglish way possible. I'm going to write a letter of complaint. I'm not even going to call or text. I'm going to just write a letter. I want to... Uh, d- uh, uh, to... S- I think that this is a, a really nice feature here because as we progress through this part of the story, Vernon is going to continue to try to solve these problems, the problems of the letters, in the most mugglish ways possible. And this is our first hint that he has, you know, he's not going to find any clever or imaginative solution to this problem he's going to solve it simply and bullishly it is also a first early introduction into the power imbalance that the magical folk have over the uh muggles you get the biggest sense of this in the first chapter of the other minister of book six so i'll talk about it way in the future then yeah um but this is kind of the first time where you can see like it doesn't even it doesn't actually matter vernon could be the smartest muggle on planet earth the people he's against here are magical he's trying to block the letters from these magical people who can perform magic that he can't even wrap his brain around so he's always going to lose this battle which which is why it makes it so crazy to me that he doesn't at some point here give up like he still does it by the end of it even with hagrid in the rock hut like he is not he's yelling at hagrid the dude who just like gave his son a pig's tail that harry's not going to this school he is it is a weird determination to just make harry this miserably unhappy that I, I, it's hard to it's hard to wrap my brain around it there's a lot of funny moments here though with the 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 the, it's kind of like a cat and mouse game of Dursley trying to block all the letters. Some more letters keep coming. So Harry tries to find more inventive ways to get himself one of the letters just long enough that he can read it. It is shocking that he can't get a letter long enough for 45 seconds. Like, open, read really quick. It's not a long letter. And so you get a bunch of moments. You know, Harry, uh, in 10 chapters, is going to be the world's fucking best seeker ever. Can't catch a single letter at any moment. It's, been, it's worse in the movies. It's worse in the movie where you have that shot of him like looking up with a million letters. It's but in the not book, well done. 
It is not well no, done in the movie. But in, in the book, it's the same thing. They're all shooting out of the fireplace, and Stellar Seeker Harry Potter can't catch a single one of them. Um, you get the you get the Vernon and Harry. And we've also, in the book itself, we've had already, you wouldn't guess it, but he was very fast. Like, And yet he can't <laughs> catch a letter. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, Vernon and Harry also have a fun moment where they kind of one-up each other on who's going who's gonna to camp out the hardest who's going to wake up the earliest to beat the mailman where, and to be honest, Ver- Vernon deserves this where Harry just steps right on his face. So all of that is, is very funny. And it feels like an 11 year old, you have all the layers here. It feels like an 11 year old is having trouble outwitting the adults, which makes sense to me, but the adults are having trouble outwitting the magical people sending these letters, which also makes a sense to me. So you have all these layers here that are kind of blending together perfectly to create a comedic moment that still plays emotionally where it needs to. And I, I, this whole kind of letter portion of the chapter is just brilliant. It's all very funny. It is like, I don't, I, I think that's a very proper take of all of these moments. Like it is comedic, but at the same time, another instance of the Dursleys abusing Harry and denying him like their attempt at least to deny him his birthright. Because this kind of, this is the promise of his birthright. And also, one thing I wonder about is how does Petunia, not knowing his birthday is approaching, how does she not remember uh, when her sister got her letter and she's not on the lookout for Harry to get his? I I might ruin this for you. I think it's probably because JK wrote the Petunia chapter in book seven after she wrote this one and didn't quite write this one with the foreknowledge that she was going to write a chapter with Petunia. Right. I, I don't think when you're writing chapter one of the Philosopher's Stone that you're fully aware that one of the final chapters you're ever going to write in this series, I think it's one of the last three chapters, yeah. is going to be a retrospective on Petunia and her relationship with Hogwarts. I I don't want to accuse JK of messing this one up. I think that's probably it though. I, I think it's I think it's naturally probably it. There's a lot of moments in this first book that I think you you just don't know. Right? It's the same with apparition. You know how many times before they learned that they can apparate that apparating would have made perfect sense? I just think JK hadn't invented it yet. Which is You're fucking telling me that JK Rowling changed things as she went. And that is news to me, and I can't accept it. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm that's my head canon. I firmly believe that at this moment the the Petunia chapter in book seven did not exist, and we would not uh, we she did not know that she was writing it, and so that's probably why Petunia doesn't remember what age the letter comes. Also, do we do we think Petunia remembers exactly? Like, I don't think I don't have the I don't have the expectation of Petunia that. Or I could at least believe it of Petunia that she would have forgotten when Harry's birthday is. Just by accident. Uh, just by just by ten years of neglecting it and not giving a shit. Accident No, no, no. I disagree because the story itself makes a point of letting us know that uh Dudley and Harry are round about the same age. We're supposed to understand that they are the same age and their birthdays are at least approximate. So she could 
imagine that she doesn't know the exact day. Like, can we imagine that she's apathetic and abusive to the point of not remembering exactly when his birthday is? Sure. I think that's in the book as well. We can, we, we can believe that, but she should, I, I, the petunia that we get in the shack on the rock with Hagrid, I believe should have predicted the wizarding world reaching out to Harry. Now, I actually, while we're talking, my headcanon is changing as we're talking. I have, I have two follow-up thoughts for you. The first is, just based on the narration in this chapter, I think it's entirely possible that Petunia is feeling and saying all these things to Ver Vernon off-screen. We're mostly kind of where around Harry is. And so it's reasonable that Petunia has said all these things kind of off-screen to off-page to Vernon. And I don't, I don't get the sense that Vernon is one that's backing down here, regardless of what Petunia... When he gets us, he says, pack up, no complaints. Like, I get the sense that Vernon is not backing down here, regardless of what Petunia has to say. So it's entirely reasonable that Petunia has actually thought of all these things and brought them up, and Vernon is just like, yeah, shut up, we're going. But also, I don't know if even Petunia would have expected, like, the second he turns 11 at midnight... Hagrid was going to like kick in the shack in the middle of the storm. I think it would have been reasonable to assume like, oh, we're going to get like the letters are coming before his birthday. Someone will arrive personally, like in the morning after like, I, I, I think there's two kind of, I'll defend Petunia a little bit that even if you expect like, Hey, someone real, like letters are done. Someone, a real wizard is going to come and collect Harry. Right. I don't, I still don't think you expect it to happen the second he turns 11 at midnight. No, not that, but I just, like, this This moment, I don't know, this, you know, if, uh, if wishes and if, if ifs and buts were nickels and dimes and all that, but it makes Petunia so much more of an interesting character if, like, there's a sense of foreboding, like, approaching Harry's birthday. Maybe not the day of, but the foreknowledge that a letter is coming instead of this supposed ignorance that I find unbelievable if your sister was a witch and went through the same exact goddamn thing that Harry is going through now. I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to add. Petunia, I think by virtue of this being the first book and not the seventh book, I think Petunia does act a little bit strangely here. Yeah, and... and and you're like, I, I don't have any disagreement with that either. Like we don't in the context of what the third chapter in the first book, we don't have the room for that. I definitely agree that one of the last chapters of the seventh book is where we do have room for that level of redefining a character or expounding upon what we thought the character was to begin with. Like now is not the time. Now is the time for planting seeds much like your Ann Perkins. Do you mind? Thank you. Um, you know, much like your, uh, you call out, we have a very sneaky Aunt Marge reference in, in your notes, right? Very it's good. very subtle, right? Uh, now is not the time to have a whole chapter about Aunt Barge. It's the time to just mention the name and then move on. But 
it's definitely exciting to bullshit about it for a bit because like it's you know it's it's just it's one of those things where i'm like what are we doing here we both wrote quite a few notes about dudley and the whole smelting kind of b plot here which is just the entire thing what it really does it is funny what it really does though is it it really gives you a perfect picture of like it continues to give you the perfect picture of like just how perfectly muggly these people are. He's like a legacy pickup at Vernon's old school. They have their very British uniforms that they have to wear, and they get this stick that Dudley can run around and just hit people with. There's also some other fun Dudley things where Harry goes into the second bedroom, and you know the books look like the only things <laughs> that haven't been touched, which is just a very fun description of of that room and something that you really get a sense as harry the narrator would pick up on it really helps you kind of vibe with who the narrator is what are your overall thoughts on dudley smeltings all those things in this chapter i love the inclusion here number one first of all definitely agree it's just so very mugglish and also it is mugglish in a uniquely british way the the idea of smeltings and trying to figure out exactly what was going on here and analyze it. I had difficulties at first. I was trying to understand why JK Rowling included all of these absurd details. And the longer I spent with it, I guess is the way analysis is supposed to be, the more it made sense. But like, Smeltings is so unapologetically British. It is unapologetically Muglish and also unapologetically British. So it is like he's a legacy candidate, number one. Yeah. So we have the the family legacy and the idea that like if you go to. So I guess we would call them a private school, but. In the UK, I think they're public. I think that's reversed. Is that correct? I can't remember. As a Canadian man, I have no idea. We would call it a private school as well. We would call it a private school as well. You would? Okay. So, but I'm trying to remember. It's, um, I don't know. There's something. Anyway, doesn't, doesn't matter. The, uh, we understand that we consider it a private school and the boater the hat specifically stood out to me like what is going on because when i was in school you weren't allowed to wear a hat but my, my a, school was all you any dress code was good oh lucky yeah. but understanding that the commonwealth is you know dependent on a very naval tradition like when your hat is a boating hat that's a, it's very very british and it's not i don't think it's jk saying this is a story of national identity what she's saying is being english is uh muglish whereas you harry are about to learn that you're a wizard right and wrapped up in that we get dudley's uniform we get his props, and it's interesting that his prop is also a stick that you hold in your hand. That's true. I imagine you know? it's a much bigger thing than a wand. It's like a, a more like well, a, yeah, almost like, more like a staff. 
Yeah, the the smelting stick I imagine to be uh, a riding crop. That's yeah. what that's what I imagine in my head, right? But this to me is clearly a direct parallel. We have the description of the uniform, which includes a hat, and we have a prop, and we have the importance of the school's legacy. And these are things that are going to be turned on their head as soon as Harry learns about his school, you know? And so, so much of the beginning of the book to me is about setting up Harry's uh, mundane life and then explaining how special Hogwarts is because of its comparison to his previous mundanity. And so this to me is just another part of that um i i i think it's it's another one of those instances of jk doing something on the surface it seems uh simple and negligible but when you start to dig into it it actually is rather sophisticated it's kind of fucking brilliant it really is i like the as a canadian that since the private school kind of uniform smeltings nonsense is foreign to me, and obviously all the wizardish stuff is foreign to me, that I actually find <laughs> the wizard, like the pointed hat and the robes and all of that, like a more normal outfit to go to school in. Like I think if I went to school in robes and a pointed hat, I would be more in place than if I wore whatever the smeltings uniform is and so because i'm not reading this as a british person and all of the britishness is also rather foreign to me especially Mm -hmm. as a kid it actually actually it's like it's almost like for me two different magical worlds i've never been to england i've never heard of a place called smeltings i can as a six-year-old reading this when i was at a public school in canada that did not have anywhere near approaching a school uniform Right? Like, the idea that even the normal kids have to wear school uniforms oh, would have almost felt magical to me. So I do enjoy that it works both ways. If you're super British, she's just hammering into you the ordinariness of this and the standardness of this and, like, the structured, regimented, purely British nature of what Dudley's going through and how normal and ordinary and unimaginative this family is. But also if you're not from England and this is completely by accident, but as a six year old Canadian kid, I was like, dude, this all sounds amazing. I like the smelting stuff sounds magical as well. So it just worked. It works both ways kind of by accident. But as a kid, I remember this really working for me. It worked for me on every level. Like I like number one, uh, when I was going to school, I wasn't allowed to go to school with my shirt untucked. Like oh, wow, it was that. Yeah. yeah, right. But also, like, and and maybe this is just because I grew up in uh in a steel town, but like the school is smeltings. And like that's you know, you're turning uh iron ore into steel. Smelting, you're turning these children into men. Like it's a very like, you know transitional like formative like this is a school where you're going to become a man man we're called smeltings and we give you a stick where you can beat other kids because that's how we prepare you for the grown-up world like isn't that i'm paraphrasing but that's a line in the fucking chapter um no all of this like and i'm as far from english as, as you can possibly get but it still hit home for me yeah you know we but no had- it uh, 
it like really does i think it sets the stage for this is an alternative universe that harry potter could have potentially ended up in and you have to understand how mugglish his universe could have been so that you can appreciate and so that you can be awestruck by the world that he ends up in instead the world that he belongs in right right we both i want to give you this chance to vamp because you put it in your notes for the last episode and we didn't get to it you have written down that the seal on the hogwarts letter is green and purple or that the the seal is green and the writing's purple i can't remember which one's which but you've noted this down a few times i have not noted this down so i have no right to speak on this topic because i did not notice anything afoot but you have this is your chance to vamp it drives me a little bit bonkers. <laughs> it actually does. Because Dumbledore... Okay, here's... All right, thank you. First of all, Bradley, thank you. Second of all, it takes me out of the story. Dumbledore shows up in a purple cloak. The person that bows to Harry on the street in chapter one or two is in a violet cloak. Uh, McGonagall's in a green one or something. <laughs> is yeah, and yeah. so all that we know about color is purple, violet, green, and now the letter shows up and it's in emerald green ink, and the seal is purple. There is nothing, nothing that Universal Studios sells where the Hogwarts logo is in purple, and uh. Like, it's just, you're beating us over the head with this color imagery to the point where it takes me, like, the more times I read it, the more it takes me out because it feels overworked. It feels unnecessary. And I get, I do, I get that these are colors of importance in royal and magical concerns i mean because purple is the royal color the royal color right yeah. you know that's that's where we get uh porphyanitos you know that's like that's where that comes from but we gotta have more than that it just seems very simple now caveat though devil's advocate i will i'll point out to myself um there's something nice about Hagrid showing up and his umbrella is pink. There is something nice about that because I, I love how you're devil's advocating your own point. <laughs> no. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, uh, that's, I mean, part of analysis, you got to red team your own shit, you yeah. know? Um, there's Hagrid shows up and he's weird. Like, we understand that he's weird, he doesn't belong, he is part of a world apart from the world that we've been shown before. And it would be lazy, frankly, if his umbrella was green or purple. But it's pink, it's different, it's new. And that lets us know that Hagrid is somehow different. So, yeah, I, yeah, I gotta admit, it bothers me. It takes me out of the story. And... 
if it didn't take me out of the story so much, I probably would have less of an issue on it. But like, I, I, I really do bump on it, man. It's, it, it's laziness to me. Anything magical in the story has to be either green or purple. Just smacks of carelessness. I So this whole thing, none of it bothered me. I didn't even notice. It didn't <laughs> even cross my mind. I did not pick up on the references to the Green Emperor. And we, 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 we both listened to this audiobook back to back to back. I was getting hit over the head. I wasn't taking breaks between chapters and stuff. Right, mm-hmm. and it's so like I it just whoop, right over my head. Didn't even pick up on it. And when you wrote it down, though, what I found even funnier is once we get into the magical world, I the next thing something's purple, like the night bus, right? Like the none of the house colors are purple. Purple just gets ixnayed from that. Slytherins is green, mm-hmm. but that makes a lot more sense because of the snake imagery. It's not really because green is a wizarding. Color. So what I, I what I actually liked, separate from all the things you said, is that it actually gets abandoned very quickly. For the it rest does. Of, it for doesn't the, come back. It doesn't come back. Like, it's just green, green and purple. It's just everything is green and purple for two and a half, three, four chapters, and then purple and is it, just gone forever. It bugs <laughs> the shit out of me. Like there's no, there's no. Uh, Harry opened the package and it was a Nimbus 2000 all covered in purple. Like it never comes back. Right. I always assumed to be, to be fair to the Hogwarts logo part specifically, I assumed that it was a wax seal as an adult, maybe not as a kid. I don't remember. Right. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, I'm like, Oh, they picked a purple is still like the fact that they're picking the same colors. I get it. But I, I assumed it wasn't like a color copy I assume this was like a wax seal. I don't know why the wizards are using wax seals. I assume it was like purple wax. And so the whole thing was one color instead of... Anyways, I don't think we need to talk about the colors anymore. <laughs> I think we do. They bug you. They don't bug me. But they get abandoned very quickly. They do. And that's like... You spend so much time calling attention to color have it have it be a thing you know have it be a consistent thing the only part of it that's consistent is the green part because the greens are the baddies you know right. green slithering that, cool got that's, it that's coming up we'll get there when yeah. we get there um the last thing i wanted to talk about before i briefly go over vernon's kind of trip to the rock and how that goes for them um, I just want to talk a little bit about Harry's emotionality here. I do feel like you and I are both prone to kind of riffing on the color scheme for an hour and actually forgetting that there are characters in this book that need a little bit of tender love and care. Um, yeah, we should fo- we should definitely redirect our attention. You're right. We You're are right. we are following Harry Potter in this chapter, and I just want to call out some common emotional themes throughout these chapters, just so we can track how he's feeling as he he goes along, especially because these next couple of chapters, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of times where he's scared or unsure or nervous. And it's just worth tracking those things. And one of the things I I find really hard to read in, in this chapter and the next, actually, is just how dejected he is, right? Like, even then he gets moved to the, the new room. And even then he's like, I would have I loved, if I could just have that one letter that was written to me, I would have loved to go back down to the cupboard that would be amazing the the fact that someone is in the in the emotional state that a letter written to them 
an acknowledgement that they exist. We learned in the last chapter that Harry doesn't even have anything in this house that belongs to him. His, his stuff going up the stairs to his new room is one trip. Or this is not like he doesn't have things. He doesn't exist in this house. And to have that, when you're at the emotional state where a letter addressed to you is enough to make you accept all the other terrible shit they're doing, just, just so you can have the letter, I don't know. That's fucked up for an 11-year-old man. Or 10-year-old at this point. It's fucked yeah. up for anyone, but specifically yeah, we're following a 10-year-old. Right. And, you know, I, I do not think that's accidental. I think that's on purpose. I think we're supposed to, we have to go, like, deep into Harry's despair to really enjoy the euphoria of finding the world that he belongs in, you know? Um, it's definitely upsetting don't get me wrong but also it's it's necessary like this is the place the story has to go to so that we can really like we as readers can join harry and being as ebullient as he is to finally find the world that he belongs in you know yeah um after after all the letter shenanigans happen vernon big brain vernon has some ideas as to how he's going to thwart these letters, which is, again, these people are magical, Vernon, and you know this. Like, you're not winning this battle. <laughs> they start by going to a hotel. Vernon's like, everyone pack up. No complaining. We are going to this hotel. So they go to, the, and this makes a lot of sense. Harry and Dudley share a room, which is funny. But then the letters arrive at the hotel. And at this point, Connor, at this point, Vernon surely gives up, right? Surely after going to this hotel and the letter nope. showing up there, Vernon goes, you know what? Well played, magical people. Well played, weirdos, freaks. You beat me. I tried, nope, I you, failed. You can't, you can't give up because you're a plot device. <laughs> <laughs> Vernon chooses the hustle, hit, never quit mentality. And he takes his family to, enthusiastically, I might add, to a rock in the middle of the ocean that has a shack on it with the forecast being a storm. And he is happy about this the whole time. He's like, Ooh, I found a person and they're going to lend us a boat. I found the perfect place. No one will find us here. This is, I don't, I don't want to vamp on this for too long. This is actually just, I think you're right. It's a plot device and we got to get Harry to a shack in the middle of the ocean, but good God, like Vernon is on. I don't even know. I've never been this determined. If I had been more determined than Vernon in anything in my life, I'd be a much more successful person, maybe, because Vernon's determination is impeccable here. Unquestionable well, determination. These are the lessons that you learn when you sell drills, Bradley. <laughs> you, it's all the you drill selling. To, <laughs> you, I mean, this is this is what you learn when you sit your back to the window instead of staring outside. Right. Uh, so, so Vernon, Vernon was prepared for this moment. He has lived his whole life ready to take on the wizards in this moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. He's he's been training. I mean, what what we don't get is the like rocky montage of Vernon running upstairs from imaginary wizards. You know. Right. Or like practicing um, his rowing skills to get over to the rock. Yeah. So my my reading of this moment is that Vernon is a part of 
uh, JK teaching us that this is a story about destiny. And he is going to do everything he can to deny Harry his destiny. And the story is going to inform us that destiny is unavoidable. You can find a little shack on top of a rock in the middle of the sea that you have to row to um, where you think no one can find you. Uh, and you can literally arm yourself against the people that might deliver the destiny to you, as Vernon also does. But this is a story about destiny finding you, whether you want it to or not. And, and like, I, I think that's, uh, I think that is Vernon's function here. As a character study, it's fascinating. Truly, it is. But at the same time, I don't know if that's the point. I think the point is we're transitioning into the Dursleys serving Harry's story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's Harry's birthday, or it's about to be Harry's birthday. They're at the shack. Harry has to, of course, has to have the smallest, shittiest, fucking most ripped up blanket because everyone else there is a complete asshole, and that has not changed. Um, but Harry's counting down, which is, again, really sad. This is sad to count down to your own birthday, laying on the floor of a shack in the middle of nowhere. Um, but he's doing it anyway, and then the second... It's very well-timed, actually. Hagrid with impeccable timing. Um, great writing here, too. Like, you really build up to the storm is loud outside and Harry's counting down. And then you get this big, like, boom to end the, the chapter. And someone is at the door. We're going to learn next chapter who it is. But what an ending to this. this just, I just wanted to call this ending out specifically because I really found the writing to be top-notch top here. The, the suspense and the build-up to Hagrid kicking in that door. Very well done. Yeah. It's objectively successful. It's good. Like, it is. You can, you know, your mileage may vary. For some readers, it might be a little heavy-handed, but it's important that, like, we've got, we've got a storm brewing. You know, like, how, ma how many brilliant tales begin with it was a dark and stormy night you know um but also we're approaching his birthday and a birthday is a threshold so someone opening a door a literal threshold at the same time that a birthday begins a metaphorical threshold is a signpost to you the reader that things are about to change and they're about to change hard and instantly and also, I like. I cannot explain to you how much I appreciate the catharsis of taking Harry into this dark, dank, dingy. Give me more D words. Uh, shack on top of this rock, like downtrodden. Take, like, yeah, there. Yeah, downtrodden shack. Exactly. Decommissioned. Um, well, is it decommissioned if it's available for rent? But, I mean, you, you've got to go to this low place, right? In order to have the catharsis of having Hagrid show up and, and get onto the next step of Harry's life. It, I mean, it really is, really is great writing. Yeah. In this moment, too, though, 
We know by virtue of us having gone through the Harry Potter books more times than is necessary in a lifetime. <laughs> or we recommendable. Know, we, or recommended, yeah. Um, <laughs> we know that the person on the other side of this door is good. For all they know, and you know, the, for the, the person might be, this might be Voldemort coming back to kick the shit out of Harry. Like, for all mm -hmm. you know, like, you don't actually know that this is a good person coming to lift Harry out of this world into a new one. It could just be any old, any old bad guys come to find Harry. Like, good guys have magic, bad guys have magic, presumably, right? Like, it, it, it's a little heavy-handed. It's it's written for 11-year-olds, right? Like, it's it's not too, um, um, what's the word, clouded or fuzzy as to who is going to be there. Of course, it's going to be someone nice, but you don't actually know that. Which adds to the suspense uh, a little bit. Connor, who is your winner for this chapter? Did you, hang on, did you ever think that it could be a baddie on the other side of the door? No, I never did. I'm just saying, I think the suspense. You just see it, you see it as possible. Okay. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So my, my winner for this chapter uh, is Harry Potter. I, like, how can it how can it not be? There's no one else here that wins. In my my, my winner is also Harry Potter. Now I want to get your reasoning, because my reasoning is I so I wanna I'm gonna spoil a little bit. Harry Potter wins. This is as good this is gonna be his best stretch. Harry Potter for me wins the next couple of chapters. I think the next three or four after this as well. Harry is kind of a clear winner. Um mm -hmm. this is his big stretch of winning. Before we meet any of the other kind of winning characters, before Dumbledore gets involved and Hermione and Ron have too many chapters, Harry is kind of in terms of winning chapters, Harry's kind of isolated here as the victor of all of these. Um my the reason he's winning this chapter for me is cuz he's finally kind of incidentally unintentionally just by virtue of people sending him all these letters, fucked with the Dursleys to a degree in which I think they deserve it. Like he, yeah. he by virtue of just being himself and getting these letters, it has driven Vernon Dursley mad to the point of taking his whole family out to this rock and like sleeping I, with the crisps and not being able to light the fire and all that stuff. And I think they deserve that. And that's why Harry wins for me. Yeah. Harry is my winner because no matter what happens, like no matter how dingy downtrodden a shack he finds himself in, he's still dedicated to being an asshole to try to like get what he believes is his like that's my letter that's my uh, i would like to read it in as much as it's mine like i can i can see harry potter in this chapter fitting in so well with uh uh padfoot mooney wormtail and prongs like he's like he's part of the gang at this point like, he, um, he, he also is... has this really funny line when Petunia is showing him his uniform for the other school. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I didn't realize it had to be so wet. You got a little yeah. bit of sassy Harry. Sassy Harry is going to come well alive throughout the course of this series, but you do get a little bit of it here. You're like, fuck yeah, Harry. Petunia deserved that. Yeah, same as um, the, uh, oh, that the line, uh, yes. Uh, the line about uh, the poor toilet. I don't know if it's had anything so foul as your head down yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just he he stands his ground. He stands firm, uh, doesn't back down, and keeps fighting for, hey, no, this is my, uh, I believe that belongs to me, please. And his defiance makes the artifact of the letter, right? It makes the letter 
a individual artifact as like a the the avatar of his birthright overall and he keeps fighting for it and that's what you need in a a hero character and so yeah i I have to give the winner to him because like that's what you want in a hero and it's that kind of personality that keeps you reading absolutely Um, harry potter winning for both of us for the first time There'll be a spreadsheet, listeners, if you have Twitter, Facebook, wherever, you, wherever you're wherever you socializing with us outside of this podcast, there will be a spreadsheet to track this that you can check out because we won't remember. But this is, for right now, this is the first time you and I have picked Harry Potter. Big win for our boy, HP. Who's your winner for a concept or thing? I am going to go. Not for the first time. I am a fan. We had this whole argument in Facebook about animals and Hogwarts and stuff, which I will not get into right now. We'll get into that probably in Diagon Alley chapter. But I'm a fan of the owls. I like the whole idea of the owl post. The owl post wins this chapter. The efficiency, the speed, the determination of the owls being sent with the letters to make sure that they get to Harry. And that's not all the owls. Right, there's some stuff that ends up in the eggs. Right, I'm assuming well, probably an owl delivered it to the hotel, actually. So it is mostly the owls, the owl post. The, the wizards have a functioning, speedy mailing system. No stamps required. You just put the thing in the owl, it gets it to the house. And also the owls just fucking bug Vernon because they're magical and they're doing magical shit. And that bugs Vernon a lot. And so just the owl post system is my winner for all those reasons. What about yours? The sentence ate a funny Welk. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a funny story about Welks, actually. <laughs> it's not even a funny story, actually. This is a very unfunny story. But I, when I read this for the first million times, did not know what a Welk was. And I just, ah, some kind of food. I was watching an episode of 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, which is like a British comedy math show which is pretty funny. And one of the people was trying to do the math while eating like 12 whelks or something. And I almost vomited on my screen. It's disgusting. Yeah. I'm surprised she didn't get sick from eating a normal whelk. The whelks are gross. They're not great. And that's your winner. Just the, the phrase ate a funny. We've reversed. I'm trying to pick a thematic thing here and you're trying to meme the funny lines. We've, we've I'm done not, a 180. I'm not trying to meme it at all, but it's like, it's very similar to on vacation in Mallorca. Like yeah. JK Rowling has written some of my singularly like favorite lines ever written in the English language. Absolutely. Like, Ate a funny whelk is a hilarious thing just to say, to read. Also, maybe if I'm being honest, maybe I'm influenced by Jim Dale doing Vernon Dursley saying ate a funny whelk. That doesn't the matter. Delivery. Wherever you hear it, that that's fine. That's allowed. Yeah, the delivery is brilliant. But like, I'm sorry. It's a great sentence. All right. And that's going to do it for chapter three. Which is awesome. We did it. That was a reasonable time. 45 minutes all in. We were Can't on a complain. roll. Yeah, you, you not guys bad. Are gonna, you guys are going to hear a jingle. And we're going to be back with chapter four. Pop 
Potter fans, if you are here and enjoying this podcast, boy oh boy do we have something cool for you. In the show notes below, there is a Let's Dive Deep Facebook group where you can come outside of the podcast, hang out with me, with Connor, with other people who are enjoying the Let's Dive Deep series of podcasts. In that Facebook group, we talk about all kinds of pop culture things, not just the things we cover on the podcast. For instance, the new Spider-Man movie came out, No Way Home. I loved it. I want to know what you think about it. Did you love it? Did you not like it? What are your thoughts? You know where I can find out what your thoughts are about the new Spider-Man in our Facebook group. So if you just genuinely like pop culture things or this podcast and you just want to hang out in a Facebook group and chat with people who are relatively like-minded and chill, that is a good place for you to be. Additionally, we have a Patreon. If you have a few galleons just lying around that you would like to send Connor and I his way in a little value-for-value exchange on that Patreon, we have our show notes. We have some extra content. We have early access to all of our podcast episodes. That is available for you to check out. That'll be in the show notes as well. I believe it's patreon.com slash let's dive deep. Otherwise, though, I think that covers all of this little ad break. Let's hop back in and talk about chapter four. We are back. The fire whiskey is still flowing. By the time you guys get to chapter seven of the next episode, who knows the state we're going to be in. But for right now, things are still good. The keeper of the keys. Quick recap for you all. If you haven't read the chapter recently, again, hit up Spark Notes if you want like a proper recap. Uh, Hagrid arrives to the fucking rock shack the second Harry turns 11. He expects to be able to deliver his letter in person, but he discovers that Harry knows nothing about anything, and he now needs to have the talk with him. While doing all this, or what, what am I even saying? Um, while doing all this, he deservedly fucks with the Dursleys because they're terrible. Harry reacts rather well, rather well to this news, if not a bit surprised and confused upon hearing he is a wizard. Alternate chapter title. What did you pick for this one? The Giant. Easy. <laughs> no, no further analysis necessary. Just the giant. I put, you're a wizard, Harry. I don't know how to do... I, we're going to get, in the next episode, I'm going to do the Sorting Hat song. I have some voices. I have some Harry Potter voices that I want to do. But I, I don't have a Hagrid one. But I want to put this for two reasons. First, it's just the iconic YouTube video that you're a wizard, Harry. The Hagrid mm-hmm. and Harry, or the Hagrid and Harry animated video. It's too iconic from my childhood not to just throw in an alternate chapter title. But also, that's not even what the line is. We have a real Houston. We have a problem situation. It's, yeah, um, we we, we got Harry. a real Berenstain Bears thing here. It's Harry. You're a wizard. So it's not even the the big iconic line. I guess it's from the movies. I think they change it for the movies. I'm assuming they do. But in the book, that's not even the line. So I just wanted to shout it out in the alternate chapter title. We'll stay tuned. We'll find out if that's the title in the movie when we watch it together, listeners. Oh, dear. In that's episode be... whatever it is that it's going to be. Uh, Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a fantastic title. So I, so I choose The Giant. Uh, my title for this chapter because I do like that the focus in the chapter title is on the appearance of Hagrid. I like that. I think that it's appropriate. We frame the title uh, in the POV of being focused on Hagrid. Love that. But the Keeper of the Keys? Really? Like, yes. Um... Okay, that's a thing that you do. It Now I'm getting back into green and purple territory. It never comes up again. Never, 
ever is there oh, a... you're right yeah you're right because i was gonna i was gonna call you out in the hogwarts express harry defends hagrid against malfoy but he says he's the groundskeeper not the keeper of the keys that's true this never comes up again like there's never a moment where uh like hermione needs a book from the library and she can't get to it and hagrid toddles up and he's like well let me open that up for you my scranger like it does not happen right your Hagrid so, voice is fucking good, man. Wow. I do okay. That's a good one. I do okay. Sorry, sorry. I got some games. Okay. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, but uh, I, 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 I have I have a very particular set of skills. Um, but <laughs> it's it's very strange to um to introduce this as a chapter title and then not make it an important element later on right um now i will say this requires on my part a very literal interpretation of the word keys now if you want to make a more existential argument you can classify hagrid like his status as the keeper of the keys as he's he's functioning as uh the the gatekeeper for harry generally right he keeps the keys to harry's first steps into a larger world that argument i get i'm behind i love it however jk rowling does not indulge in such uh shall we say existential naming conventions and she definitely doesn't get existential with titles, right? Also so, true. So I'm if waiting, you're gonna, now, now I'm actually trying to really rack my brain to figure out in the 200 chapter titles of Harry Potter because I just see the flood of emails we're about to get. Like, see, like, book, do, book four, is there is there ever is there ever any time where Hagrid pulls out a key? I can't recall off the top of my head. No. You, you see what I'm saying? No, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I support everything you've just said. <laughs> I I really do. I love it as an existential convention. I think it's brilliant. Like it it does it does everything to support all of my thoughts about this is not a boarding school adventure story. This is a fairy story. This is a classical heroism story. This is X, Y, and Z. Like all of that. But it's inconsistent with the way that she tells the rest of the story, you know? So just call it the giant, you know, or just call it Hagrid. Yeah. Or something ominous. The man at the door, the giant at the door, the man that shook the shack. Oh, also, the whole shack <laughs> shivered. I can never, like, every time I read that or hear it, I just hear the B-52's love shack in my head. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. It, it's not her fault, but it takes me out of the story. I recently watched an episode of Foundation where th there's this, like, house ex that appears explicitly in the middle of this town that you've never seen before for two of the main characters to just have sex in. And that whole scene, I just had Love Shack playing in my brain. This is all it is. They've, we've never seen this apartment. I don't think we're ever going to see it again. And it just exists to be a fuck shack for the two characters. Anyways, the, this chapter begins. 
And I like the whole, sorry for that. We do contain adult content. This chapter begins. And the whole conceit of this chapter is amazing. Because we're going to get to some very deep stuff here with Harry and his emotions and him finding out all of this stuff about his past. But Hagrid, when he arrives, clearly he has not been given enough information. And I, I am going to keep track, once we get to Hogwarts, of how many times I believe a Hogwarts professor should have been fired. I do not and think this, this is where one, it starts. I don't think this is one of those moments. Oh, okay. All right. Because we're not yet at Hogwarts, and this is not in the realm of uh, the duty of being a professor or a headmaster. Dumbledore here. I have a bone to pick. Give Hagrid the information he needs. Y'all know damn well this kid doesn't know fucking anything about his life, about his parents, about anything. You know this. This is not, there's no way you got like the, you got the cupboard under the stairs to the bedroom maneuver on strict lockdown so you can pick, pick that up. To then not be able to figure out that he doesn't know anything about his life. I think Dumbledore did not give Hagrid enough information here because Hagrid rocks up with the full expectation knowing that he has not received any of these letters. You were having trouble getting your letters, Harry. It's something he says or something like that. And Hagrid, it's very funny when he rocks up, assuming that he's just going to give Harry the letter. They're going to go buy the shit. It's going to be awesome. He's in for a bit of a rude awakening when he finds out no one told him that Harry does not know anything about his life. I disagree. I think... Fight me. I I, I will. Uh, I believe that the knowledge of the letters not being received they have a they have a kind of owl post delivery confirmation system that's automated right <laughs> so they they know whether the letter has been received or not if owl post is as sophisticated and brilliant as it seems to be then they just they've Owlpost always has its uh, read receipts turned on, is what I'm yeah, saying. Definitely. Dumbledore, in his infinite ignorance, turned Harry over to the Dursleys and just decided no longer to care ever again at all. So their ignorance of Harry not knowing anything. Hello, Samson. There's, a, there's um, a cat walking across Connor's lap if you're not watching this. I guess there's no way for you to watch this live. but There, there isn't. However, if you join the Facebook group, you can see him uh, staring at squirrels eating a pumpkin. Um, they, they just decide to hand him over to his muggle aunt and uncle. And I, I really do think this is a feature, not a bug. This is the start of the conversation about how special Harry is. Because they can't believe for a second that even people that are as mugglish as the Dursleys would not revere the Potters. Even, like, in, in the context of our story that we are reading together, even people as mugglish as the Dursleys could not love how good the Potters were. 
they were up head boy and head girl. They were a mate. Like that's it's just it's pure. My reading of the moment is it's pure shock on Hagrid's part. And I don't think Dumbledore will ever admit that he was surprised, but I can believe him being surprised at this revelation as well. All right. I'm going to allow it. <laughs> I'm not going to fight against it. I'm not going to not going to agree it. with it. I'm but not going to allow it. I'm not going to agree with it. But I will allow it as a as a permissible counter argument to what I just said. Hagrid arrives, and we immediately start getting into Harry's psyche a little bit here, and we get the iconic: "You look like your dad, but you have your mother's eyes." Just fucking tears every time, and it's such a simple description that's going to keep coming up to like a purple and green kind of annoying degree over the course of the the whole story. But man. Every time I read this book, it hits just as hard the first time he gives it. It also hits hard for me specifically because if you read these books or listen to them with the, uh, frankly, irresponsible fervor that you and I do, um, you, you just recently had Hagrid dropping Harry off. And so... Like, this is, for us, for me, when I read these books, it's half hour, 45 minutes. For Rubius slash Rubeus Hagrid, it's 11 years, you know? Yeah. He was the one that delivered Harry, and now he's back. And so you intuit, you bring into your own body all the emotion that Hagrid is bringing into the scene. And frankly, I think that makes him a very well-written character. I think that's why he's like one of the more sympathetic characters in the series is because of his connection to Harry, our protagonist. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so good. I noted here too, that the, it's just a continuation of something JK has done very well up until this point, And we'll, we'll continue to do for the next couple of chapters until we're fully in the magic world little tips and hints and tricks and things with magic that are just kind of happening. We're still not at wands. We're still not at wands, channeling magic, casting specific spells, but Hagrid's doing a few things in this chapter. We're going to get him lighting a fire. We, the Dursleys couldn't do it with the Christmas stuff. So Hagrid does it by magic later. We're going to get him using magic on the boat. Uh, that's in the next chapter. I think there's just a few little magic, little things happening here that Hagrid's going to do that help us normalize to the magic. I, I equate it to like when you're a diver and you dive really deep into the ocean, right? You can't come back up too quickly. You have to kind of normalize at each level or else like your veins and shit will just pop, right? And in order to help us believe that there's this big, broad, magical world full of all these spells, we just get to see these little bits of magic that are slowly painting a picture in our mind. So by the time we hit Diagon Alley, that it, it's not... It's not too overwhelming. We're not surprised by all these magical buildings. We've seen enough to convince us that it's kind of worth exploring, but not enough that we're not still interested. We're like, ooh, is this all magic can do? It's just exquisite work with introducing the magic without it being like a deus ex machina or too overwhelming or just too cringy. Like, I don't know. It's just well done. That's all I want to say. It's still well done. I mentioned in the last episode, it's still well done. You're saying this is J.K. Rowling preventing us from getting the magical bins? <laughs> yes. 
on that note, uh, Hagrid's arrival and everything that happens after it is narrative, just in terms of narrative structure, is a little weird. Because he is this magical being. He's a giant. And yet, everything that happens after is very mundane. Everything that happens after that is very mugglish. And uh, I don't know. I've, I, I've got all of these notes about the, the parallelisms and the comparisons between what is magical and what is mugglish. And that's exactly what you just said. In a, in a different way, though, it's like we're bringing more magic. It's almost as if what what J.K. Rowling is doing here is we're gonna bring something more magical in here, and it's going to be a shock to the system emotionally. Cycling back to what you brought up earlier about the emotionality of our connection to Harry Potter. But we're not going to shock your system in a way that's like, oh, by the way, you can levitate the shack now. What do you want for your birthday present? Uh, do you want an elephant? Here you go. Like, it's it's not that kind of experience, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That would be too much. That would be too that would, yeah. weird and quirky and cringy and not interesting. This is way more interesting, the way she does it. Yeah, we're still in uh we're still in an intermediary space here. We're still in a liminal space. We're not quite into the wizarding world completely yet. We we do light a fire with magic, but we cook sausages with it. Not <laughs> uh, can, we, can we pause for really? I just this we cannot take too much time on this because it's not we have enough to talk about, but <laughs> sausages, just a bunch of sausages, tea, a birthday cake, and like whiskey and/or brandy. <laughs> like what a meal. What an absolute meal Hagrid has packed along. This is his Hagrid's food choices are a mood that I subscribe to. I will also say we can't take too long to talk about it, but you brought up the whiskey. I called it out in my notes, too. The whiskey, to me, is fascinating for one reason only. Well, two reasons. Number one, very British. But, like, it, Hagrid is in, like, total, like, great, uh, uh, all creatures great and small mode here. Like, it, it, it's a cold uh, uh, English night, and you need to have a whiskey. But he says to Vernon Dursley, uh, uh, he he asks Vernon to make tea first of all, and then says, "I wouldn't object to something stronger if you've got it." And then later, he pulls out his own bottle. So he has his own liquor, and he's trying to get some for free off of Vernon if he can't, and only drinks his own after the fact after learning that Vernon doesn't have any booze on him like i just love the idea of hagrid trying to get all the free booze he can get it is that's it's a mood it's there's so a, charming there's a, there's a mood here with the food and the drink that i'm just uh-huh. i i just really vibe with hagrid well um, it's so comforting and and this is not this is the first time 
but it is definitely not the last time that Hagrid feeds Harry and anyone else around him, right? There's something... There's something homey about Hagrid. There's something about him that I believe we're supposed to intuit as comforting. Uh, he's he's supposed to be a safe haven, right? Like, he's supposed to be... He's... He's like a walking Burroughs, honestly. Really. Like, he really is. He is the personified... Uh, walking, talking, living version of the Burroughs. I think that they perform identical functions in the story. I agree. I think that's absolutely true. I want to break... We got to break down... Hagrid is the centerpiece. I mean, the chapter's name. He is the anchor of this chapter. Everything kind of passes through Hagrid, goes around Hagrid, is brought to attention by Hagrid. He is the narrative figure by which everything in this chapter happens. And the way the chapter is written, which works really well to read, but maybe not so well to analyze, is you're kind of bouncing back and forth. Hagrid's trying to tell Harry something. He's realizing that Harry doesn't actually know about that thing. So he goes and yells at the Dursleys for a bit and realizes they've lied to him. And then we start the cycle again, where Hagrid's trying to tell Harry something else. And then Dudley gets involved. And it's kind of hard to, to kind of keep track of all that when you're not actually reading the chapter. So I think where I want to start with Hagrid is just Hagrid and all the stuff with the Dursleys first, because that'll help us dive into Harry's kind of emotional state, to then talk about all the stuff with Hagrid and Harry. So listeners, this may jump around a little bit, but it's just the nature of kind of analyzing the chapter that it's a bit tricky to stay moment by moment. Hagrid and the Dursleys. There's a real obvious and deserved antagonistic relationship here. Hagrid is here on a mission that he views as just a purely kind of... Um, administrative mission like harry just needs this letter he's got to get some school supplies he's got to come to hogwarts he's going to know all this stuff he's just the school administrator tasked with carrying out this job when he arrives he finds out that the dursleys for their entire life up until this point with harry have been actively trying they use the word stamp out that we'd stamp it out of him Right, so he finds the Dursleys in a, in a way where they've lied to Harry about how his parents died. They've lied to him about him being magical. Anytime he references anything kind of magical, like seeing the flying motorcycle in the zoo chapter, right? He They get really mad. Anytime he does something accidentally manage, magical, like the snake thing or getting on the school rooftop, he gets longer and longer punishments. And Hagrid is, try, is figuring this out in real time. And he, as an avatar for the reader, gives the Dursleys some comeuppance here, right? Gives Dudley a pig's tail, which I do want to talk about. That is a little bit, mm. But the point, though, the general giving their Dursleys a bit of comeuppance and not giving them room to speak and not letting them have a say here, I find was really deserved. There's just a lot going on with Hagrid and the Dursleys that I really loved in this chapter. I agree. One thing that I particularly appreciate here is what I think we're supposed to learn about Hagrid's sense of justice. Uh, the Dursleys are not evil to Hagrid because they're ugly or they're grotesque. They're, uh, they're overweight. That's not why they're evil to Hagrid. They're evil to Hagrid because of the choices they've made and the actions that they've done, right? Um, the pigtail hard to 
swallow. But also, I think that I think that it's part of. Um, I think it's supposed to be like a we're reading a childish wizard story trope kind of thing. Like I'll, uh, you wait, know, Connor. Wait turned- a minute. Are you telling me that J.K. is going to use stereotypes and tropes a lot over the course of her novels? A little bit. A little bit. I'm I'm a little she, bit she saying does, that. She does that, doesn't she? I I am a little bit saying that. Um, when we get to, when we get to Gringotts, we're definitely not bringing this up again, are we? Nope, not. No. Uh, this is this is never uh, never going to resurface ever again. Uh, it's uh, you know is this is the only instance in her ever. entire legendarium where where she does this. Um, yeah, it's just uh, I don't know, like this. This is a difficult argument for me to make, I acknowledge, because it's Hagrid that's doing it. But trying to turn Dursley into a pig and failing and instead just giving him a pigtail, for me, is... It's less connected to Hagrid and more connected to stories like... uh, Willow. And more connected to stories uh, like... The uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, she turned me into a newt, but I got better. Like, it's just turning someone into an animal is witchcraft, right? Yeah. Or wizardry. Um, and so that's that's the point of it. And... Yeah, I, I think that's the point there. Now, I'll, I'll admit, though, it's... It's really hard to swallow when later Hagrid says, I suppose he was so much like a pig already. You know, like that's, that's, that's one of my two problems with the yeah. pigtail part. I'm with, I'm with Hagrid fully up until the pigtail. Not the, 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 the other comment at the end about him being so much like a pig anyway. Like that's literally just every character in the JK Rowling universe. Like, like I, it's very, it's unfortunate, and I've already talked about it. She has a very high propensity for just every character that is a good guy to just point out that the Dursleys are fat. That yeah. is just a thing the good guys are going to do. My next problem with it, though, is I have a hard time. So Hagrid is here, and maybe the self-awareness isn't quite fully filling in here. Hagrid is here, and on one end, he is chastising the Dursleys for keeping Harry, an 11-year-old child, keeping his life hidden from him, which is cruel and terrible and all of the rest. But also, as a god, you in uh, Hagrid in this situation is not just a giant. He is a godlike being with powers that are unmatched by the other people in this room, right? So Hagrid could be literally anyone and have the balance of power exclusively in his corner in this situation and to turn that in this whole situation, to turn that into, you know, throwing a charm on the 11 year old child who as much as we hate Dudley had nothing to do with Harry's had it was not involved at all in this. And the, the primary complaint of Harry, not knowing his past and all of that. Dudley's a bully. Dudley deserves to be chastised as well. 
But as the godlike being defending the 11-year-old, it is unbecoming to then take that out on the 11-year-old on the yeah. other side. Yeah, the fact that he turns his ire to Dudley makes it so much worse because he puts a tail on Dudley as a reaction to something that Vernon says to him. And we learn later that this tail has to be surgically removed in London. Yeah. This is like not an this is not a curse he then undoes. Right? So a godlike being kicks in this door. I'm so, I was I was so hoping that wouldn't come up. I don't know. I was that was foolish of me to believe it wouldn't. But like that is that that point right there is like, okay, so let me get this straight. We can surgically undo magical things. Is such a world breaking thing for this universe. I think I understand it. I think I understand how if you curse on a pig's tail to somebody, the solution magically is literally just to un you could just undo it. No surgery where like there's just no I can understand how you would then have to go and get it like the muggle way of fixing that problem is then to have to do surgery and cut it off. I can understand how they that doesn't that doesn't break the world for me. I understand because both solutions are vastly different. Okay, right. so we we have a character who has encountered a spell cast on them by a powerful magic user, and it has implanted upon them a uh, a physical marker, a uh, shall we say uh, that that's what happens when someone casts a spell on you. And now we learn that it doesn't matter and it can be removed with surgery. And that that doesn't affect the storytelling of Harry Potter for you? Not, I, I think I do have some nuanced takes on it that I think I'll bring up in the other instances that are similar, but that I think are slightly different to this. All right. I understand where you're going. And I, I might have some small problems with this, but it's not world breaking to me. I can I can I can headcanon some nuance in here that makes it different than some of the other situations we'll encounter throughout the series. Well, I look forward to it because I I think I like I think this is this is something that I actually need some Harry Potter counseling on. Okay. Because uh, this this bugs me in a way that I have to admit it probably shouldn't. <laughs> I think between the purple, you've had a rough few chapters with all the purple and the green and the pig's tail. I just haven't had that. Pro I just, I've just been living the dream, baby. You know, it's, it's, th this book for me is very challenging. It's very rewarding, but it's also very challenging. It's not Prisoner of Azkaban challenging, but it's, it's difficult. Right. Oh my God. The scene in the prisoner of Azkaban where like Hagrid is chatting with the minister of magic in a random pub. For... Okay, we'll get there when we get there. We'll get, sorry. We'll get there. That is the single worst scene in a Harry Potter book by such a large margin that I can't even begin to describe it. Okay. Uh, Hagrid... Can we, 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 we got to start moving towards the letter. We, yeah. we got to start. So Hagrid and the Dursleys, we've covered that to some degree, maybe not fully, but we got there. Um, we both disapprove of the pigtail thing. We're not fans. Can we can we stamp that? Let's dive deep. Opinion: the pigtail thing was too far and aimed at the wrong person. Yes. Now, 
pigtails. Absolutely. Pigtails, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Also cute on the right person. But the pigtail stamp. No. Let's dive deep. Stamp of disapproval for Hagrid's use of magic against Dudley Dursley. Moving on. Uh, Hagrid also has a bunch of conversations with Harry that are interspliced with all the stuff with the Dursleys. The main thing that happens here, first of all, is that we'll talk about the invitation first. Harry gets his invitation to Hogwarts. Hagrid hands him a letter. No one is stopping him now. Vernon Dursley has been defeated in his quest to destroy all the letters. Harry's going to get one. He's been invited to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And here begins the longest five years of my life, hoping that by some weird magical chance that I would get a letter when I turned 11, because I was like six when I read this the first time, I did not get that letter. I have waved very many sticks around yelling Latin-based things in the woods, and I have no magical powers, and I'm sad. I think this is the moment where we you know we we develop our philosophy that these books are written for the age that harry is right it's not a perfect thing but yeah more or less they do definitely get darker and deeper and there's more depth to them as they go along and i think the last book kind of lands in perfectly like kind of heavy ya territory where like a a 16 year 17 year old would be I, i i subscribe to that theory even if it's an accident yeah, like whether whether it's on purpose or not, like I think this is what kind of cements it, you know. And um, there's there's a lot that uh, that I want to talk about in a uh, a like a a fairy story centered bonus episode about like birthdays as a threshold, right? Right. Um, that is probably like is is cool stuff to talk about, but it's not necessarily like crucial to now um but a birthday like the the shorthand version is a birthday is a threshold and we should have this moment happen around uh the birthday and my understanding is that 11 is when um so like that that's the transition from elementary to middle school i don't have middle school in my district so i don't know but yeah that sounds about right gotcha so what do you have just primary and secondary school it's different based on the district here so like the city over for me does have middle school it's a district by district thing not a province by province thing gotcha so when do you start secondary school 13 13 okay 6 to 12 in one school 13 to 18 in secondary school. Gotcha. So, and I I may be incorrect on this then, but I thought in the UK, and, and um, I may still be right, I don't know. But, so we have uh, elementary, middle, and then high school. Right. And I think the way the Brits do it, you've got primary and secondary, and then 11 is the threshold for that. Interesting. I have no idea. Could be. Um, I would assume so the, based on this story. <laughs> yeah. 
the way y'all do it makes much more sense because 13 like that's that's the age of adulthood for anyone clearly yeah um but yeah like it's it it definitely is an important night in his life and it's fascinating to me how so many readers and you're not alone in your experience. I oh, absolutely also, not. Everyone I, who I, read I, Harry Potter and had an 11th birthday was like, fucking yeah, I'm getting the letter. Right. And I just lament the fact that you had to wait on it because I was reading it in real time. Like, oh, I'm getting my letter tomorrow. Right. No, I had to wait five <laughs> you know? years. I was already reading like Half-Blood Prince by the time I was waiting for my letter. Oh, you read that book way too young. Yeah, man. I have discovered new meaning in it after the age of like 10 or something or whenever it came out. <laughs> it does hit a different does hit a different note at 26 than it did. I'm going to so, you you I'm going to Google when Half-Blood Prince came out for me. It maybe was after I was 11. Okay. Oh, now now I desperately want to know when it came out. So, I I'm curious to know after you find that answer. I mean, take some time. I got fine. it. I was ten. Find I the was answer. Exa- I I know Harry Potter inside now. I was exactly ten years old. It came out uh ten about two months after I turned ten. Most impressive. I want to know if you ever had actually gotten that letter. What would you imagine it would have said? And how does that compare with the letter that we get in the text of the book? Oh, man. I hadn't imagined anything about the letter. The method of delivery. I just assumed it would come in the mail or an owl would pop up. I had never thought about it. I I just assumed you've been in, hey, Bradley, you're wizardy as shit coming to this fucking magic school. You've read all of that. Well, I guess you probably... You probably don't have to because we get an actual text. You just assume that like you're going to receive an hey. identical letter to Harry. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you've you've read the books about this school. You know what's up. Don't go on the third floor corridor. <laughs> Forbidden Forest is bad. Like I I I yeah, yeah. I just I just thought I get the same letter as Harry. Same school list, pointy hat, some robes, a couple of cauldrons, some dragon skin gloves. I don't know. I'd be stoked. But I never thought but not, about it. But not a gold cauldron. You are yeah. not allowed to purchase a gold or a broomstick. We all know I would I would put my whole family into severe amounts of debt for the Nimbus, Nimbus 2037 fucking super fast. Yeah, that would be. Anyways, we should get back oh, to Hagrid be... and Harry because there's a lot of deep stuff happening here. Um, yeah, probably. Harry getting this letter is... is it's the mo- episode two and... Harry Potter is already getting severe Hamilton vibes. Like, we're already <laughs> off the rails, man. Off, yeah. Uh, Harry gets this letter. The horizons are expanding. This is a huge moment for him. It's his first step into the wider world. And you, you've you put it in the terms of the hero, st- um, kind of like the hero story, the stereotypical, like the call to adventure that you have mm-hmm. to accept. Um, and Harry's a little confused. He's a little... You know, there's little fun moments in here where Hagrid is saying some stuff. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm not 
I'm not stupid. I can do math and stuff. Like Harry's unsure. He's a little nervous. Some of this stuff is checking out to him, but he's not fully convinced. He does say at one point, like, Hagrid, you might have the wrong person here. And Hagrid's like, nah, with a witch and wizard like your parents, you're going to be the wizardiest wizard ever. You're going to be the best at this. Don't even worry. And there's a lot going on here for Harry. And I like the depth of emotional range that he had he wasn't written like just some dumb 10 years like herp derp i'm gonna be a magic man now he he really gets the the he really gets the time to sit with it and experience that full range of emotions all the excitement all the doubt all the nervousness all the anger at the dursleys especially at the point where he finds out that his parents didn't die in a car crash that's particularly kind of cruel and unnecessary and he gets to experience that anger and i i love that we just got to sit with him for a minute in all of these emotions everything you just said is why i reference the cambellian hero's journey here is because i find that this is to be a very interesting and nuanced uh reaction to this moment it's not just uh it's not just, no, I'm not going to go on an adventure. It's it's an emotional moment where it's questioning everything. And it's a very, like, it's very easy to invest in this moment from the reader standpoint. It's not just, like, I, uh, it's, it's difficult to describe. Um, the moment is not, my father wasn't a Jedi. He was a pilot on a spice freighter. That's not what the moment is. Right. The moment is I'm questioning everything and also how could I be good at anything and I feel like I'm bullshit and I'm also sad and like it's it's much easier to invest in into than just the flat affect rejection of the call. I adore it and it's it's one of those moments where I'm like J.K. Rowling is actually a very good storyteller because it's brilliant in its simplicity. It's elegant emotionally, but in its structure, it's very, very simple. Hagrid also does a lot of legwork with us in terms of giving us a little Voldemort download. Um, this comes off, and, and J.K. will do this a lot, where there's kind of small frivolous things that you can miss. We talked about this before we started recording. There's kind of these small little bits and pieces you can miss, and they won't matter because when you get the download later, you won't feel like you've missed anything. But if you're paying attention when reading these books and you have a keen eye for these types of things, or you're reading it for the second time, third time, fifth time, whatever time I'm on, <laughs> whatever it is, um, you can pick up a lot of information here, and a lot of world building happens very quickly, very subtly, and doesn't feel expository at all. Feels very fluid. We get a little Voldemort download here. We get some references to um, coming back, some wizards coming back from a trance. That'll be uh, applied to the Malfoys, who will, of course, lie that they were under the Imperius curse when Voldemort was around, so they can come back into kind of high society as the rich overlord governors of Hogwarts or whatever it is the Malfoys do in their spare time when they're not fucking with uh, pure blood bullshit. Um, we're going to say that there's, we're going to hear there's some magic Voldemort may not have counted on. We're going to learn a lot more about Lily's sacrifice. So this is all kind of playing around here. We're also going to get some hor Horcrux 
foreshadowing the iconic line. Um, some say he died God's wallop, in my opinion. Um, didn't have enough left in him. Didn't possibly didn't have enough left in him to die. This is all important stuff that's going to click, 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 fit perfectly into the story later. But if you miss it, totally fine. We're just going to call it out here because we're all reading this for not the first time. It's indicative of how deft she is sometimes at telling this story particularly like she she's very honest with leaving hints you know if you if you blink and you miss it if you don't notice it you'll get it later and it'll be okay you know but you as a storyteller you have to straddle this line between you want to let the audience be surprised, but you also want to deal with the audience in good faith, right? Does yeah. that make sense? Like, there's you it have to like when you get the reveals, they can't be so surprising that you could have never possibly ever seen them coming, right? There needs to be, but there also can't be so much loud groundwork laid that it ruins the reveals or ruins the surprises or ruins the flow of the story. So you are always trying to figure out what is what is too much foreshadowing, what's too on the nose, what's too expository, and yeah. and what serves the story. Like it, it's it's very well done here. It is difficult yeah. though. Yeah, it's it, it, it's very difficult. I think she nails it. Now I. My favorite example of her doing this actually occurs in this book and it's Quirrell. Like what she does with Quirrell in this book, I think is the best way to do this kind of storytelling. Like it's, it's brilliant. Um, and don't worry, Kira, we're, I'm not going to go down that road too far right now. Um, but it's, it's great. I hope Kira has read all seven books before she listens to this. <laughs> I should put a I should so. put a spoiler in the in the first episode. Like, hey, if you're in the Facebook group and you haven't read Harry Potter, do not listen to any of it till you're finished the whole thing. Um, but that's okay. Um, I want to. I have this feeling that I want to talk about Harry's emotionality more here, but I don't think we need to because we're gonna get a lot more of it in Diagon Alley. Um, when he's actually getting exposed to the, the wizarding world. I just want to one more time really call out that I loved Harry's getting to be angry at all the reveals about his parents. I think that's deserved. I think that that's necessary. And I'm glad he, begrudgingly Hagrid kind of does this. He didn't know he would need to do it. Um, but I'm glad he gets this moment in front of the Dursleys while they're there kind of shitting their pants against the wall Right, with a magical person holding them at umbrella point. he They have to watch him get all this information that they've tried so hard to keep from him. They have to stand there and watch this happen, the thing that they've tried to avoid for 11 years. And I, I could talk about it forever. I think I'm going to leave it there. I think it just thematically is perfect for Harry uh, and the Dursleys, mostly except for the pigtail, get what they deserve here for sure. Yeah, I agree. And also, I think that it's it's definitely worth calling out Harry's anger. It's something we're going to come back to. Definitely worth calling out here. Connor, do you know what time yes. it is? It's time to tell me who won this chapter for you. Well, can, can I take a quick diversion before we do that? Yeah. And, and I'm 
I'm claiming it's going to be quick. I'm hoping it's going to be, but I I want to take a diversion. I want to talk about some some things in the letter that Harry gets that that are going to like set up our understanding of the book going forward. Like Sure, because, that sounds fun. I I actually think this is this kind of fascinating like when We've had this chapter before the Keeper of the Keys. We've had the letters from no one. It was all about letters, and we didn't get to read one, right? And now we have the Keeper of the Keys, and we actually get a letter. Hagrid gives Harry his letter, and he says, I think it's time you've read your letter. One thing that I find interesting about the wizarding world of Harry Potter um is that the rules of magic are kind of fluid at times. Things change uh, as the story dictates they need to change, right? The letter, I believe, is the first time we get uh, any indication of what the rules of this world are. And the person at the top of this pyramid is Albus Dumbledore, headmaster. So, first of all, he's the Order of Merlin, first class. So, Merlin is real. Yeah. We learn. Uh, he's the Grand Sorcerer, Chief Warlock, and Supreme Mugwump of the International Confederation of Wizards. So, like, once again, going back to the combination of Hagrid being weird and of the world of fairy but also definitively mugglish the international confederation of wizards is to me like that just seems like a like a union that's yeah, just like it doesn't sound like the un of wizards which are kind of yeah it's just like the elks it's like the wizards moose lodge right <laughs> um but it's fascinating to me that when i read this and we're we're listing off all of Dumbledore's superlatives. It's fascinating to me that someone can be a wizard, a sorcerer, and a warlock. Those are all the same, right? So yeah. we don't have... We Each d- story kind of does those differently. In some stories, the warlocks are kind of bad, and the wizards are kind of good. In some stories, it's like a measure of skill, like kind of like a belt system. You go from a wizard to a warlock. What I don't, what I don't yeah, like about this, exactly. Is, so you put it's clear that J.K. doesn't play D and D, which is yeah. true. It is one hundred percent true. <laughs> I will say though, she never, she never contradicts this either. Later, like there's never a point later where like a supreme mugwump warlock comes in. And you're like, wait, didn't we learn about warlocks? And that doesn't sound like something Dumbledore is or whatever. Like, it, it is weird, but it also never really gets contradicted in a meaningful way that's noticeable, which I at least appreciate. If you're going to have weird rules and shit, if they never get con- contradicted, they at least can I, they can land for me. I've never thought about this either, to be honest. Yeah, no, like, I'm. It, it, it's great that it never gets contradicted, but... Sorcerer. Here, in the letter, on the night that Harry is finally told what his destiny is, and who he is, what his identity is, it turns out that his identity is actually that of a wizard. Right. And... You're a wizard, Harry. 
the governor of his world that he's about to enter into, the headmaster of the school to whom he belongs and he's been invited into, is a wizard, a warlock, and also a sorcerer. So why the fuck is it called the Philosopher's Stone? Well, the Philosopher's Stone is a real item. Not, not, no, 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 I, I know that. Okay. It's based on like a real world mythology of a, okay. I'm confused. As right. <laughs> but I'm saying if, if we change the title of the book to the Sorcerer's Stone. Right. Right. Which did happen for the American version. It did. That changes my reading of finding out that Dumbledore is a sorcerer. I can see that. I had the Philosopher's Stone version as a kid, so I never had this contradiction. I can yeah. see how you're reading it. So wait, wait, wait. Is he the sorcerer that has the stone? See, if you pick up the book and if you pick up the book as the Philosopher's Stone and you read that Dumbledore is a sorcerer, you keep reading. Cool. You're sorcery. Fine. Yep. Yeah. But at the same time, like, it is interesting that in this, even without that issue, this is a unique view of the different titles of magic users. In J.K. Rowling's world, you can be a wizard, a sorcerer, and a warlock, which is very uncommon. It's it's very com uncommon. I would say, I dare I say, it's unique. Like I think she's I, the only one. I think she put about as much care into the wizarding titles because they do. They kind of like a lot of this stuff. It doesn't really come up again. There's some whiz and gamut stuff later, but it doesn't really come up again. I think she put about as much care into the titles of different magical users and other kind of magical stories when she was writing this letter as she did into understanding sports when she invented Quidditch. Like, like it works. Don't for get me started. Or, like, or the, or, or the, uh, or the transition rate between her money and right. she even makes a, a joke about it herself. Harry didn't know how many pounds would equal a galleon, but right. yeah. Like, th th there's enough titles here. I think the point here, for an 11 year old, I was like, yeah, Dumbledore's cool as fuck. <laughs> he's, a, he's a wizard. He's a warlock. He's a he's a professor. He's a headmaster. This is the most overqualified magical principal ever. Ever. Well, and yeah, and honestly, like my, my note about uh, J.K. Rowling does not play Dungeons and Dragons is not an insult to her. It's a celebration of her just being like, how magical can I make this motherfucker? <laughs> right. Hey, I, need, you know? I need to make it clear right now that Dumbledore is the most magical person. That this guy is in charge of the world. In the next two chapters, he's gonna like he wanted them for Minister of Magic. Right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, uh like She's just holding back from calling him president of the magic world of magic presidents, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest of this letter is pretty lame, though. Also, it's, why is why is McGonagall on 
letter writing duty. I guess she's probably someone's probably just stamping. Like, can we not get Filch on this? Does yeah, Magali uh, need to personally write all these letters? Uh, she she's got an auto pen. Uh, also, I I believe that deputy headmistress is something that we're also going to immediately abandon. I don't think that ever comes up again. No, it does a few times. It, it does yeah. a few times for sure. The deputy headmistress thing comes up a few times in Chamber of Secrets when Dumbledore gets um, suspended by the Board of Governors. Malfoy tries to say that Snape should be the headmaster. And Snape says, oh, McGonagall oh, you're right. is the oh, deputy Oh, no, no, head- you're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then it comes up with Umbridge or something. There's some in Book 5 when she gets cursed a whole bunch. And Harry has a thought to himself like, ah. Oh, now that Dumbledore's gone, gone, McGonagall can't even fill in because she's in the hospital or whatever it is. Taking five stunners to the chest, our boy McGonagall, our gal McGonagall. Oh, man, man you God, that deep cuts from Bradley. Yeah, this comes up a few times. The headmistress thing just it does it gets abandoned for a while and doesn't come up often, but it does come back up. You know what also is going to come back up, Bradley? Your vote for the chapter winner. I'm picking Harry Potter again. Look, our man, his, he has his call to adventure. He's becoming a wizard. He gets his a more full kind of um, appropriate uh, comeuppance in front of the, the Dursleys, which I think is earned and he deserves and the Dursleys deserved it. Um, he He's taken his first step into the magical world. And I I have a hard time after all that Harry's uh, suffered here before this moment to not just give him the win for the excitement and joy he must feel at having a whole new life in, in front of him here. I like your pick, though. Your pick is, I think, equally as valid. I'm just going the other way. Um, but who do you have as your chapter winner? Well, before I name mine, let me just say that I also love yours. And 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 I got to be honest, I love it empathetically. We've talked about this already, right, recording this episode it was very easy to see ourselves as Harry reading these books and aspiring to be Harry, to have this kind of adventure. So definitely a respectable pick, in my opinion. I gotta go with Hagrid. I got to. It's a fair like, pick, man. I can't you, this, can't, you can't dunk on it. It's a good pick. This motherfucker shows up with a trench coat full of mice and cake. And sausages. Sausages. A flask of whiskey makes some tea and says, Oh, by the way, uh, you're a god. <laughs> like, come on. In this but, in this world of gods, you're you're a famous god. Yeah. Uh not only are you different, but you're different from the rest of us. But I love you. Like, that's that's part of it. Like, Hagrid's loyalty to Harry is brilliant to me. He adores Harry. Like, this chapter takes me back to chapter one where when Hagrid has to put Harry down, like, there's, uh, th- there's a line, something like, he, he let out a howl like an animal or something yeah. like that. Like, he's, you know... um. So that's my emotive response. Intellectually, Hagrid as a character is 
infinitely fascinating. I don't know if I will ever completely understand what Hagrid actually is as part of a story, right? Because uh, part of, I mean, it fucking blows my mind. So part of fairy story and part of hero story is all about thresholds, right? And it's about moving from one world into another. And Hagrid, in a way, lives his entire life on a threshold. He's not a squib. He's not a wizard. He's forced to be in the middle. He, uh doesn't have his wand anymore but can do magic he's always caught in the middle right <clears throat> and then we double down on this by who do we bring to harry to transition him out of muggledom into magicdom the living fucking threshold hagrid like he he is what he does and also does what he is and both of those things are like they sound the same but they're actually functionally very different he doesn't it's fit into fascinating like a, character a stereotypical archetype there's no. no like other hagrids and other stories he's kind of his own archetype specifically yeah. for harry potter yeah rubius hagrid is honestly in my opinion the smartest character jk ever came up with Hands down. Um, Harry Potter is Luke Skywalker. He just is. Like, Harry Potter is Star Wars. They're the same fucking story. Um, <laughs> they're, they're the same. Whoa, whoa, they're Harry's I, dad is not Voldemort. That's the difference. Uh, well, n- no, Harry's dad is... No, but... It, I'm just messing with you. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. I understand what you're you, saying. You honestly, like, no, no, okay. Palpatine is Voldemort. Palpatine is Voldemort. Okay, I'm, I'm literally just saying shit because I think it's funny. Because I have not, I have not really made this comparison. Palpatine killed Luke Skywalker's dad. I, I'm not arguing with anything you're saying. I literally just wanted to throw that out there to throw you off because I think it's well, funny. <laughs> you did. You definitely did. But like now, now I got to go down this road with you. We'll do. Like, we'll do Harry Potter x Star Wars in a bonus episode. I think you'd enjoy it, that. It's gonna be about thirty seconds long. It's just gonna me. It's just gonna be me going. Harry Potter is Star Wars. You're welcome. But like, so like all of these things you can find these common threads in other stories. I am hard pressed to find anything analogous to Hagrid in any other like popular yeah, that, that's story. Tough. You know what I mean? JK does a few interesting flips here. Um, you know, Harry being the orphan, certainly not uh, an uncommon kind of pop culture 
start for our hero's journey. Um, but him being famous in the world he goes into is pretty unique. There's not a lot of people that go into the world that they're meant to be in and become instantly famous and enamored and loved by everyone in that world, except for the Malfoys in this case. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's a few small differences, but yeah, Harry Potter as a character is very much, at least the beginning follows a lot of themes that a lot of other fantasy stories do, but you're totally right on Hagrid. It's not right. He doesn't even really create an archetype. Like, Han Solo was an original character that has now created an archetype of like the swashbuckling kind of follows his own code kind of space cowboy. Yeah. Right. And so now you have in, in a lot of other movies, you have like, Oh, that person's trying to be the Han Solo. And it never quite works obviously because Harrison Ford is amazing, but there's not very many people trying to introduce a Hagrid into their stories. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, it's an outlier, you know, and he, he makes sense when he's, moving with McGonagall and Dumbledore like when when he's part of the original power trio it's much easier to understand when Hagrid is on his own or he's changing Harry's life it's really hard to like understand exactly what the fuck is this character because it is unique in my understanding of uh my, my understanding of uh fantasy literature you know he's kind of tom bombadil ish no 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 but but also kind of gandalf ish like he's he's the person that gets you out of your hobbit hole I'm not disagreeing with any of those two, but yeah, it's just unique. There's no yeah. I'm not yeah. That's that's the thing. You can't you can't find a character in any other author's legendarium and go Hagrid is J.K. ripping off this person. Like Hagrid for me is like one of the things where I'm like, this is uniquely her. Who is your winner? What is your winner? For the place, thing, concept, or theme? Destiny. Explain. Well, you can't... You're, you're saying well as if we haven't explained our other picks? Like, whoa, wait a minute. You want me to tell the audience why I picked this? You Come on. To, what? You want me to explain it? No, but you can't avoid it. You can't. I mean, I think it's going to be... Uh, at the end of the book, if you haven't got there yet, dear listeners, um, you're you're gonna be told that uh, you can't avoid what's coming to you, and this is our first clue. Vernon Dursley has tried and failed to avoid everything that is coming, and the chapter begins with someone knocking down the door. And then the Dursleys try to argue and fight and let's not talk about it and let's not do this. And no, we're not going to have one. And Petunia goes on her, her rant, but it's inevitable. Hagrid explains Harry's destiny and his birthright to him. Right. You know, it's just the, the, the winner of the chapter for me is you're going to get what's coming to you. 
hope it's good. You know, I, you can't. There's no escaping destiny. I I wish Harry Potter was kind of a better story to examine destiny versus fate. And maybe in like book six, seven, there's some room for that. Harry's not the best Ooh, story yeah. for it. Because um, yeah. destiny versus fate is such an interesting concept to try and unpack and unravel. And every author and every story has like a different version of what those two words mean. I picked the truth as my winner for this chapter. Mostly, this isn't a fair reading of this chapter specifically, but just with my knowledge of the rest of Harry Potter, we're going to spend a lot of Harry Potter not getting the truth, mostly out of Albus Dumbledore, um, but for a variety of other characters as well. And what I appreciated about this chapter upon my millionth re-reading of it is that I just appreciated for a fucking moment that someone just tells Harry the truth. Car crash? That's a scandal! Your parents were killed by Wizard Hitler! Right? Like, like there's no subtlety to it. There's no, it's just pure the truth. You are a mm -hmm. wizard. You're going to this school. You need these supplies. This is your letter. Your parents died in this way. These people suck. And that's just the truth. No superfluous details. No unnecessary withholding of information from anyone. Right? The information that does get withheld is just information you believe Hagrid doesn't actually know like, he doesn't actually know that Voldemort has horcruxes and stuff. He's just taking a meandering kind of guess at, like, not enough left in him to die type of thing. And so I, we're going to spend a lot of Harry Potter not getting the truth out of people or the full story. And I just, unadulterated truth in this chapter, I enjoyed. Except if you ask me why it was kicked out. Yes, that's true. That's in the next chapter, though. That's on the boat ride to the... That's the beginning of the next chapter. I don't know, the winner for the next chapter is not truth. Oh, the next chapter? No, no, it is definitely not. <laughs> All right, but, I think I, I think I'm good for these two chapters. I think I'm I'm satisfied with with our analysis. I am too. I will also just point out: I always wonder if Hagrid saying it's an outrage, it's a scandal, if that is on purpose an Oklahoma reference from JK or not? Because every time I read that, I start hearing it's a scandal. It's an outrage in my head. And then I have to listen to all of Oklahoma. And then I think JK Rowling, why have you done this to me? And then I don't care because I'm happy listening to Oklahoma. Dear listener, if you would like to listen to Oklahoma to let us know if you think JK <laughs> stole this line from Oklahoma, you go right ahead and send us an email. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter. We have a Facebook group you can join if you want to hang out and chat with all of us about the variety of things we do deep dives on or just your favorite pop culture things that aren't the things that we've covered on this podcast. Uh, we will be with you next time to ca ch cover chapters 5 through 7. There is a Twitter that you can go and hang out at at Let's Dive Deep. We have an email address to send your feedback, thoughts, questions. We will start compiling all of those for some feedback episodes we are going to record and hopefully release around the holidays. We have a secret special mailbag Christmas episode we're hoping to do. More details hopefully soon on that. Probably at the intro to this podcast when editing Brad comes in and does that. There's also a Patreon. If you would like to throw a, a few galleons or canuts or silver shillings or whatever our way, um, and hop in on the Patreon. You'll get early access to all the episodes. There's some tiers that have our show notes, some producer credits, those types of things. Uh, make sure you go check that out as well. 
Otherwise, I think that's it for us. Thank you so much for hopping on the Hogwarts Express with us today, and we will see you in the next one. This episode of Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter was created by Bradley Kanakin and Connor McVeigh, produced by Bradley Kanakin and Connor McVeigh, edited by Bradley Kanakin, and produced on Patreon by Emma McVeigh. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We hope you are enjoying the series and can't wait to dive deep into Harry Potter with you in a future podcast episode.